Okay, so um, welcome to the Sporting History Podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This week, it's my pleasure to talk to Dr. Prashant Kidambi about his excellent book on the 1911 India Cricket Tour, Cricket Country. Hi, Prashant. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Prashant is Associate Professor in Colonial Urban History at the University of Leicester, where he's based in the Centre for Urban Studies. In 2007, he published The Making of an Indian Metropolis, Colonial Governance and Public Culture in Bombay, and he's the author of numerous articles on the history of colonial India. But the main focus of our discussion will be his latest book, Cricket Country, An Indian Odyssey in the Age of Empire, published by Oxford University Press, in 2019, which I've had the pleasure of reading over the last uh, week or two in preparation for reviewing it for the BSSH's journal, Sporting History. And in fact, I filed that review yesterday and a very positive review. I'm very uh, swift to uh, point out. Prashant also has a very special place in my heart as he was one of the examiners for my Viva, which I'm glad to say went as smoothly as I could ever have hoped. So I thought Prashant, I'd start by asking you, how do you go about um, preparing to examine someone for a viva? It's a very interesting question. Um, nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, I have done a few now, uh, largely because my interest in South Asian history uh, sort of cut across uh, different areas. And um, so I've been invited to examine PhD theses on um, quite different subjects, really. Uh, but also because of my interest in the history of sport, I've had uh, the opportunity to uh, you know, uh, act as external examiners in this area too. And Jeff's, um, yours was the first uh, PhD thesis in the history of sport that I examined. Um, I suppose there isn't a, a single method really, because it is quite a subjective exercise in some ways, though you know, the, the fact that it's supposed to be an examination suggests that it has to be standardized and so on, which it is, but I suppose the method uh, that examiners use is quite subjective. I don't have a method per se. I think I'm, I have what I call it guiding principles because each thesis uh, has its own requirements in terms of what you bring to it and how you approach it. Um, but the guiding principles are that you recognize that the person who's written it has put a lot of work into it, that you're one of the first external readers of that work, that you should engage with the work in as uh, constructive a way as possible. Uh, in other words, you don't just criticize it for criticism's sake or just to score points. You want to, that work to be the best it can be. And you also want your interpretation of that work to be the strongest that it can be so that you don't reduce its arguments to caricatures, which you can then um, sort of criticize in, a, in, a, in the examination itself. You want the arguments you want to uh, interpret the arguments in their best form, as it were, so that you can bring out its potential and make that uh, sort of apparent to the candidate. Because sometimes people who have written something are not always aware of the importance of what they've said. Um, or they may be aware of some things, but not others. So it's, it's a way of, so for me, it's a very creative exercise, I think, you know, where you actually sit with the person who's written it and you have a chance to tease out from the work all its potentialities. Um, and I suppose the last point is that to recognize that any work will obviously have its limitations, but the task of an exercise such as this 
is to make it possible to go beyond those limitations, you know, or to overcome those limitations, or to make the uh, candidate aware of those limitations so that they can make the work as strong as it can be. And coming out of that, to try and think with them of ways in which they can take it to the next stage in terms of publication and so on. I think that's such an interesting way of thinking about um, the Viva examination as a creative process, as a, yes. as a dialogue. It's not just uh, one person yes. thrilling the other. Yes, and, and I have to say, I've been very lucky in all the uh, examinations I've been involved in that the works have always interested me. Yours, for example, I still remember, and I profited greatly uh, from reading it. In fact, this would be the other uh, point to make, I suppose, that PhD theses, uh, in terms of the examination process, are not simply important for the person who's up for examination. There are also uh, ways in which the examiner themselves can learn from what they've read, and, and which is why I think a lot of people do it. You know, it's a way of keeping up with the latest research, but also, uh, you know, it brings a fresh perspective to one's own research. So, for example, uh, your research is a uh, thesis was a classic example of this. When I uh, read your thesis, I was still in the, you know, sort of grappling with my own book. And as you know, your thesis was about sporting tours, and my book was about sporting tours. So I learned a lot. Uh, and in fact, you're acknowledged in the book, and your work is also cited in it, largely because you, uh, the points you were making were very relevant to what I was doing. So it, I benefited from the process. So I think that element of a mutual dialogue and both the examiner and the candidate getting something out of it. I think that's very important. That's very kind of you, <laughs> Prashant. Um, but I remember it was, a, it was surprisingly enjoyable, actually, the, the Viber examination. And, uh, yes, and I think uh, the, uh, uh, the other examiner, Saul Dubo, he, you know, he, was, he was fantastic too. It was a really nice experience. And I felt, I remember, recall it as a really good, intense conversation. It felt less like an exam and more like a, a proper conversation, but a serious one. So, talking about cricket country, then uh, you, you said that you were writing the book at that time, which is some time ago now. Um, how did the uh, idea for the book come about? What was the origin? Well, cricket country was a very long time in the making, uh, almost a decade, I would say. And the idea was first suggested to me by my friends uh, Ramachandra Guha, mm. who's a well-known historian of modern and contemporary India and Sheil Berry, who was um, at the time um, editor of Wisden. Mm. And uh, they approached me with the idea of writing something for Wisden to mark the centenary of the tour in, in 2011. So they wanted to uh, give me enough time to collect, do the research and, and write this essay. Um, Ram, of course, knew that uh, I was very interested in the social history of Indian cricket, and it urged me many times before to, to you know, to uh, work on the topic. Uh, at first, I was a, a bit hesitant because I was not quite sure what it might entail, and you know, um, because I was already working on colonial Bombay for my professional research, as it were. I didn't know how much time this might take up, and whether I could actually give it that time. But the invitation to write for Wisden proved irresistible in the end because it's not often that the editor of Wisdom calls you and says you want to do an essay which um, we will publish. So I started doing the research and right from the outset it, it became clear to me that this was a very fascinating story. Uh, it had the cast of characters was extraordinary. I mean you had 
a team chosen on religious lines, you know, six Parsis, five Hindus, three Muslims, led by a Sikh prince. You had two of the players being, you know, untouchables, or Dalits, um, you know, who were regarded as untouchables by the upper caste Hindus. Um, and so I was very fascinated by the characters and I started doing the research and it became very clear that the context um, of the tour was highly political and so on. And I, so I did write the essay, uh, which came out in 2011. Um, and Shield tells me that it is the longest essay in the history of wisdom. I, I, oh, wow. I yeah, because it, it was a 5,000 word piece. It was quite a long piece. And, uh, and having written that, I wasn't quite sure how to proceed. I, you, you know, a part of me was sort of uh, very aware that there was enough here for me to do a book on, but it was not quite clear to me what sort of book it should be. Should it be just a history of the tour? Is it a history of Indian cricket? Uh, how should one think about, you know, the, the, the event in relation to, you know, colonialism and empire and those sorts of connections? So, uh, so all this kind of took shape in the years after the Wisdom essay came out. Um, luckily, I'd had a Levy Hume Fellowship um, uh, in, tw in 2009 and 10, which actually allowed me to get time off to do the research and then write the Wisdom essay. But then it was really after that came out, the years after that, that the idea for the book really took off. And, and then I realized that it's actually... A, the, the the interesting thing about this was the imagining of nationhood through sport mm. and and the torturous process by which that happened and the complicated history of sport nation and empire and so then i realized you know that it would have to be on a larger canvas and and that is how the book kind of uh, as you know having read it it's sort of snowballed yeah. it's, so it's, so at one level it is a history of a sporting tour but for me, it's also a book about the particular age that it uh, was set in. Yeah. Uh, and that's what it ended up becoming. That's two aspects that I really picked up from reading the book and reviewing it. Um, one, which I'd like to focus on maybe now, which is that really the book works as a, as a history of the first 50 years of Indian cricket. And yeah. the big story of that, um, of that history is uh, the sort of, the taking up of cricket by the Parsi community and then diffusion of cricket through the other uh, communities in India. So can you talk about why the Parsis were so important in developing Indian cricket initially? Right, yes. Uh, the Parsis were, as you say, uh, a very key uh, element in the early history of Indian cricket. They're the first community to take to the game. Um, for those of your uh, listeners or viewers who uh, are not aware uh, of uh, South Asian history, the Parsis are originally, they're Zoroastrians who've uh, come over from uh, Persia, modern-day Iran, and settled uh, in Western India from the 11th century onwards. And they essentially were initially located in Gujarat, and then they moved to Bombay uh, in increasing numbers in the 18th century. They become close uh, collaborators of the British, partners of the British, um, you know, in the trade with uh, in raw cotton and opium with China. And by the mid 19th century, they're a prosperous uh, community defined by their religion, of course, but also defined by their very uh, vocal investment in cultivating an identity as British Indians. They're highly Anglophone. 
highly um, invested in uh, British culture. And cricket uh, is, in their view, an integral part of the notion of Britishness. And they take to it um, from the mid-19th century onwards. In fact, they take to it from the 1830s and 40s, but it's really from the mid-19th century that you get the clubs, the institutional structure, the patronage of wealthy Parsis who uh, back these clubs, provide them with kit and uh, money and set up competitions and so on. And the Parsis, of course, are also the first, uh, because of their close relationship with the British, they're also the first to be uh, allowed to play against uh, local uh, European teams in Bombay. The Parsis are largely concentrated in Bombay. Uh, and it's in Bombay, of course, that uh, cricket also takes off. And uh, by the 1870s, the Parsis are playing Europeans um, locally. Uh, the Parsis have also started, uh, by this time, entertaining thoughts of taking a team to uh, Britain. And they're the first to actually undertake tours of cricketing tours of Britain. Uh, they do so in 1886 and 1888. Um, and so their um, investment in cricket is absolutely central to the evolution of Indian cricket. It's after watching the Parsis play cricket that other Indian communities also feel um, inspired to take up the game. There are two interesting aspects, though, to, to the story of Parsi cricket um, and its role in um, the development of Indian cricket, early Indian cricket. One is that the conventional assumption is that, you know, the Europeans and the Parsis, the British and the Parsis were very close. The Parsis were like collaborators and so on. Um, while that's true of the economic realm, what's very interesting is that when the Parsis take to cricket, the Europeans of Bombay were very ambivalent about it. On the one hand, they, they uh, found this intriguing. On the other hand, as the Parsis began to get better at the game and started defeating European teams, the Europeans reacted very badly. Uh, because for them, this was a case of the mimicman actually becoming a, a threat on the sporting field. The other uh, point, of course, is the importance that visits to Britain acquire, uh, cricketing visits to Britain acquire in the Parsi imagination, and how that sets the foundation for this, the, the first Indian cricket tour, because the Parsis are the first to uh, develop an institutional culture around the sport. They also, you know, the, the first ones to, uh, the Parsi elite is the first to invest uh, monetarily in the game. Uh, and the Parsi tours of 1886 and 1888 are very important in bringing India into the empire of cricket. You know, it's after those tours that Europeans start, you know, the British in Britain start thinking, okay, India can be an imperial cricketing destination. And that is how the first uh, English cricket tour of uh, India happens in 1889-1890, shortly after the Parsi uh, visit, the second Parsi visit. And of course, though the Parsis didn't follow up these visits with other visits in subsequent decades, they were crucially involved in investing in the first Indian cricket team to uh, travel to Britain. And of course, the chief impresario uh, was a Parsi, Framji Patel, about whom I write. Yeah, and he, he provides the continuity, doesn't he, from the yeah, 1880s up to the 1910s. Absolutely. He provides the, he's the And of course, um, his precursor is uh, a man named Ardeshit Patel, who, was the, you know, who sets up the uh, strongest Parsi cricket club of the late 19th century, uh, the Parsi Cricket Club, uh, which is 
a bit like what Hambledon Club was to English cricket in the 18th century. Uh, that's the club which comes out in 1886. Uh, and of course, uh, Framji Patel is related to other trade. So there is that family continuity in cricketing patronage and promotion. Um, and you mentioned uh, the kind of the rivalry between Europeans and, um, and uh, Indian cricket uh, cricketers. Mm. And you talk in the book about the competition res for resources and especially playing areas. Mm. And this plays into some of your other writing about Bombay as an urban centre, doesn't it? Um, your latest article was about petitioning culture yeah. in Bombay and how Indians kind of negotiated or leveraged uh, better treatment or aspired to from the, from the British through petitions. Yes. And this is something that happens with the Bombay Jim Carner, I think. Can you tell us something about that? Yes. Um, I suppose I should uh, start by pointing out that, in, in, as I see it, one of the happy things to come out of this book was, I'm a historian uh, uh, with interest in urban South Asia, but much of my work has actually been on one city, which is Bombay. Uh, and Bombay also fortuitously happens to be the home of Indian cricket. This is where Indian cricket really begins. Um, there had, of course, been European cricket in India. So if you think of the history of cricket in India, of course, the Europeans had played it before and they were scattered all over the subcontinent. But Indian cricket in India is really, um, you know, it, it emerges and consolidates uh, itself in Bombay uh, uh, to begin with. So that knowledge of Bombay's history was very valuable in writing the first part of Cricket Country because most of it is, as you would know, set in Bombay. Yeah. And in Bombay, as it happened in the late 19th century, cricket becomes a prism through which one can look at the relationship between both uh, the colonial government and Indian society, but also within Indian society, uh, it is a site in which one can look at the relationship between different Indian communities. Um, as regards the first point, which is the relationship between the colonial government and Indian communities, in the late 19th century, they developed a very um, bitter conflict over the use of public space for sport, especially cricket. Mm -hmm. Um, what happened was that Indian communities, especially most notably the Parsis, but other Indian communities, communities too, used to play in the open spaces of the city. They used to play cricket um, in, the, uh, in the southernmost part of the island. And this land was also used by Europeans uh, who wanted to play the military, uh, you know, the European military contingent stationed in Bombay, wanted it for their uh, use to play polo. Uh, and so you have this very interesting conflict between European military polo players and Indian cricketers. And the Indians use petitioning as a tactic to appeal to the colonial government to give them, uh, you know, uh, untrammeled use of the, uh, uh, of the ground. Because, of course, they, their argument was that polo playing ruins the ground for cricket. Yeah. <laughs> and and Ram Goa has pointed out to the irony of the Indians appealing in the name of the English game and the European military, the soldiers, uh, wanting to play an Indian game, which they had sort of transformed. So the ironies of this are quite manifest. But petitioning was one of the ways in which the Indians, uh, cricketers, appealed to the colonial government. At first, the, the tactic one uh, succeeded. They, they were able to get the Bombay government to get the European polo players to restrict the use of them the ground. But then the uh, Europeans hit back and the result was a very bitter conflict which affected sporting relations between, cricketing relations between the Europeans and the Parsis 
in Bombay for a while. But there's a very fascinating booklet on the struggle between European polo and uh, Indian cricket uh, by uh, Shapurji Sorabji, mm. who was one of the participants in the, uh, in, in the struggle. And I thought it was actually a very interesting example of how the sporting field becomes a site in which the inequities of colonialism uh, are, become manifest, as it were. But sport in Bombay also becomes a site in which you can look at the relationship between different Indian communities. I spoke about the, uh, the uh, Parsis being the first to take to the game. Uh, after them, the Hindus and the Muslims also began to form their own clubs, also took to the game. And soon a bitter conflict developed between the Hindus and the Parsis in Bombay, uh, because the Parsis felt that the Hindus were upstarts, were trying to upstage them. The Hindus felt the Parsis were allying with the Europeans and not giving them an equal chance because, of course, the Parsis were the only Indian community with whom the Bombay Gymkhana, uh, dominated by the Europeans, would play. And the Hindus also wanted equal recognition of their cricketing skills, but they felt the Parsis were conspiring with the Europeans to keep them out. And so the cricket field also becomes a site in which you can look at the emerging tensions between, in an urban context between the different Indian communities within the public sphere. And, of course, what's very interesting about this is that the Hindu cricketers uh, believed that, you know, uh, as the majority community, they should be, uh, you know, their voice ought to be heard. And mm -hmm. what you see is how a colonial sociology which constructs Indian society in terms of communities is internalized. Uh, and that explains how cricket in Bombay in this period comes to be organized along community lines. I mean, to some of your listeners and viewers, it might be odd to hear of me talking about Hindu cricket or Muslim cricket or Parsi cricket, but cricket in colonial India was organized along lines of community. And that had much to do with the fact that there was a colonial entrenched colonial sociology, which believed that Indian society was organized along community lines. The community was the fundamental building block of Indian society. And cricket is also not immune to this uh, sociology, it's not immune to this worldview. Um, so, it, so in, a, in an interesting way, you can see how sport illuminates uh, wider social relations uh, and becomes a prism through which one can understand uh, the conflicts and tensions of those wider social relations. Yeah, that's that's something that really comes out, um, particularly in the run-up to the selection for the tour. So you have this strong rivalry between different um, communities within. Uh, within Bombay, but also within wider India, how how does the team come to be selected if there if there is this kind of strong claim by the Hindus to have a bigger representation? How is that tension um, kind of overcome? Well, as uh, I point out in the book, the question of communal representation is central to Indian cricket in this period, um, and as I point out before the uh, first Indian cricket team comes out in 1911, there are previous attempts that are made, uh, starting from, the, from 1898 onwards. Uh, one of these attempts in 1903 um, almost came off. You know, an Indian team was almost formed and would have come to Britain, was supposed to come to Britain in the summer of 1904. But that venture collapsed at the last moment because there was real tension and conflict between the Hindus and the Parsis over how many Parsis and how many Hindus should be in the team uh, and how many Muslims should be in the team. 
the communal principle becomes the uh, ground on which that uh, project founders and eventually uh, breaks apart. Uh, and that too, it happens just when you know, the tickets have been booked, everything is ready, and they can't agree on the final team selection. Yeah, the funding's uh, been collected and everything, hasn't it? Everything's done. And, uh, and, and it shows you how, at this point in time, Indian cricket was not was so completely conceived in terms of community identity uh, that that the question of who gets to represent the nation uh, has to be is decided in terms of this principle and of course it's a principle that is not easily reconciled with uh, sporting excellence necessarily or uh, with 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 the larger objective of actually. Um, going out and and performing uh, creditably against um, their English opponents. I mean, so what you see is sport becomes a site. Um, we you know we often think of sport as bringing people together as a unifying input, but you can see how sport can actually generate its opposite, which it can become the site of dissension, conflict, and ultimately, as it happened in 1903, 1904, uh, uh, the failure of uh, a, a project like the one to bring. And create the first Indian cricket team. So uh, this is a principle, you know, communal representation that uh, that that is a feature of all these attempts to create the first Indian cricket team. And even in 1911, uh, when the Indian cricket team goes out, the principle is very much of uh, communal representation. Mm. And and one of the most poignant um, sort of fallouts of this was that there was a very successful and very talented Dalit. Uh, batsman, Palvankar Vithal, whose two other brothers, Palvankar Balu and Palvankar Shivram, are the heroes of, of, of the book in some ways. Uh, they were very talented, extraordinarily talented uh, family of Dalit cricketers. Uh, and the, young, uh, the younger brother could not go because of the principle of uh, communal representation. Uh, and, and later on, recalling the incident in his autobiography, he talks, uh, Vital talks quite movingly about the fact that this was his one chance to have gone to England and he couldn't go because of this principle. So it is very uh, deeply entrenched in the culture of early Indian cricket. Yeah, that's what I like about the book is that you, you, you look at the, at the politics at the ground level, but then you also have this very much high politics that's going on as well. And this kind of uh, attempt to lure Ranji into the team, which doesn't come off. But of yes. course, the team is finally led by the Maharaja of Patiala. And, yes. uh, who... and yeah, they're a fascinating story. And you're absolutely right. One of the things I was trying to do was uh, to tell this story of this event from different uh, standpoints. Mm. Uh, and of course, in a way, it was called for by the event itself because it had all these different characters. And the most colorful character undoubtedly is the Maharaja of Patiala, the 19-year-old uh, Bhupinder Singh, who's just become ruler and who, in a sense, has taken the place that the great Ranji would have, um, you, you know, uh, would have had, had he chosen to, um, to play for and lead the team. And of course, these two uh, stories, you know, the story of Ranji and the story of Bhupinder Singh are very central to this, uh, to, the, to the book. Because Ranji, of course, was the key figure around whom attempts had been made to form an Indian cricket team. I spoke earlier about the fact that the first attempt to create an Indian cricket team was in 1898. And that happened in the context of Ranji's first visit to India after he had left the country 10 years earlier to go and study in Cambridge. In the intervening decade, he had become 
a famous uh, cricketer, probably the most famous uh, cricketer after W.G. Grace. Um, you know, hugely charismatic, hugely successful, and and almost uh, an imperial sporting superstar. Yeah. And he comes back in 1898, and he has his own agendas. He wants to use his cricketing success to press his claims on the Navanagar throne. Uh, Ranji, for those of you who might know, not know much about his career, um, was not only a successful cricketing prince, uh, he was also, uh, uh, he had been adopted at a young age and then discarded by his adopted father. Uh, and he carried this uh, grudge that he ought to have been the rightful heir of the Navanagar throne. His father was, of course, the ruler of Navanagar. His adopted father was a ruler of Navanagar. And uh, Ranji had this great uh, grievance. And when he became successful as a cricketer, he tried to use his cricketing celebrity to press his claims for the Navanagar throne. So when he comes back to India in 1898, he's pursuing his claims and working instantly, interestingly enough, through the uh, auspices of the Patiala court, uh, where he gets uh, a very favorable hearing. And while he's pursuing his attempts to become the ruler of Navanagar, uh, cricketing promoters in India use his presence to try and create the first Indian cricket team. But from that point onwards, Ranji is always very wary about uh, being associated with any uh, attempt to create an Indian cricket team. Because what you have to remember is that Ranji saw himself as an English cricketing icon. Yeah. And he felt that if he uh, was involved in any such project uh, uh, to create an Indian cricket team, then the old questions about his nationality would, uh, would, would resurface. And of course, you, uh, you, uh, there were people in Britain who had questioned his right to play for England, most notably Lord Harris. Uh, so Ranji was very uh, wary of, of uh, reigniting that uh, debate. And he stayed away from this project. And in fact, uh, from then onwards, for the rest of his life, he, he, he followed Indian cricket, but chose to uh, adopt an attitude of indifference to it in public. Yeah. And certainly, he, uh, he, his presence and his support was solicited for every pro, uh, attempt to create an Indian cricket team. And on each occasion, Ranji made sure that he not only stayed away from it, but he also tried to undermine it in one form or the other, uh, either by speaking out against it or actively canvassing against it. Uh, and that is how his uh, absence opens up the space uh, for Bhupinder. Now, this again tells you something about the wider politics of this period, because it was assumed that princes were natural leaders of Indian society. So rather than looking for a talented commoner, the Indian selectors chose to go to Bhupinder, whose father had, of course, been uh, a very uh, noted cricketing uh, cricketer and uh, a patron of the game. Mm. And Bhupinder had been uh, coached from a young age by Australian coaches, uh, by Parsi, successful Parsi cricketers. Patiala had a very strong cricket team. Um, and he was not a bad cricketer. I mean, he was quite a uh, sort of flamboyant batsman and so on. But really, uh, like many princes, with a very short attention span for the game itself, uh, used it more to pursue his political agendas or his status aspirations. Uh, and of course, Bhupinder... Uh, seizes the chance to go to England because, as it happens, at this point, he's just been made ruler of his state. His father died a few years earlier in 1900, and the state had been governed by Council of uh, Regency, and Bhupinder is given his full powers 
1909, but he's in a lot of trouble with the British establishment who, you know, there are constant reports of his womanizing, the fact that he doesn't take his job seriously, there are fears that he would go the way of his debauched father and so on. Uh, and so he's, and there, there's a very real prospect, his, his, uh, the, uh, you, you know, there's a big uh, sort of section in Patiala which feels that he ought not to have been given his full powers. And in fact, even his, the grant of his full powers had been deferred because of these fears and so on. So he's got all the anxieties of somebody who's just become a ruler, but is fearful that it, but his throne might be taken away because of these rumors about his misconduct. And of course, it's hard to know how grounded those rumors were in reality. What we can say is that there was some substance to it. Uh, but a lot of Bupinder's uh, sort of uh, the rumors about him were also fueled by rivals and uh, fueled by critics who were keen to bring him down. So he uses him, the cricket tour, as a way of rehabilitating himself in the eyes of the imperial establishment and get, uh, making allies finding and making allies at the highest levels of the imperial establishment uh, as a way of counteracting the uh, activities of British agents in Patiala who were keen to see his wings clipped. Uh, and so the tour then, for Bupinder, the tour is not uh, so much about cricket. It's about trying to uh, ingratiate himself with the imperial establishment, but also try to fashion uh, a sense of himself as a responsible prince you know, somebody who can captain a cricket team, uh, you know, uh, could clearly not be uh, irresponsible and so on. As it happens to, of course, once he comes to uh, Britain, he only plays three matches and the rest of the time he's spending at the court, at, you know, the coronation events and so on. But again, it's a fa very fascinating insight into how at this point in time, uh, the politics of princely patronage and colonial governance and, and uh, patronage you know, intersect as it were. Yeah. So, uh, so the cricket is again a window into the wider politics of empire. Yeah, that's that's something that I've written about myself as well, and it's very striking from your book that you take this transnational approach. And one of the characters who's not so, so prominent within the book, um, but certainly fits into that idea of how sport is a is a cultural activity that businessmen can use to gain greater prominence um, in in the empire really comes through in my work with Abe Bailey, but in your work with the Tata family. And I thought yeah. it was really interesting how the Tata family were one of these, um, had this business empire that kind of has an outpost in London, but of course is also based in India and, and cricket works for them as well. Can you just comment on that maybe? Yes, it's very uh, interesting that you mentioned Abe Bailey. And of course, uh, the book that uh, you had an essay in on mm. African cricket, but cricket and empire, actually shaped my thinking a great deal. Um, it certainly made, the, uh, made me think harder about the role of cricketing patronage, especially uh, the role of businessmen, because mm. of course a lot of, uh, you, you know, we've known about the role of princes in, um, the, uh, in cricketing patronage in the late 19th, early 20th century. What had not been actually looked at more closely is the role of indigenous capital. And in fact, my, one of my arguments is that the role of indigenous capital was actually very central. And if you look at where cricket grew very strong in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was in places where indigenous capital had invested in the game. Places like Bombay, of course, but also Karachi, Madras. Uh, in, in Calcutta, on the other hand, the indigenous bourgeoisie was less, Indian bourgeoisie was less significantly uh, invested in the game, though you had 
middle class, educated middle class people who sort of set up clubs and so on. But really substantial Indian money was less forthcoming than in some of these other places. Um, and uh, the Tatas were a prime example of this role of the moneyed elite. Um, Dorab Tata and Ratan Tata are principal, you know, sort of players in, uh, key players in the uh, making of the first Indian cricket team that comes out in 1911. Mm -hmm. Their father had contributed to the project in 1903-1904. And the Tatas, even in 1911, the Tatas were the biggest financial backers in some senses. Their connections opened up you know, uh, all sorts of uh, links with the MCC and so on, which was very invaluable when it came to finally putting together the tour. Uh, and the Tatas, like Abe Ailey, see cricket again as a way of reinforcing uh, the uh, links between India and Britain. They saw themselves as British Indians. Uh, but as I uh, also point out, the difference between Abe Bailey and the Tatas is color line, because yeah. at some level, Abe Bailey sees himself very much in terms of you know the, the white race and you know putting down the uh, uh, native races and so on, but as the Tatas, clearly that's the one aspect of uh, the imperial experience in India and elsewhere that they are uh, elsewhere in the empire that they're increasingly becoming uh, agitated about, because for them Britishness uh, consists in you know adoption of values that should be shared, uh, and and their point of view would have been that if we can play cricket and we share all these traits that you regard as essential to Britishness, then we ought to be regarded as British. Whereas, of course, uh, you know, those who are more uh, racist in their orientations would deny them that status. Uh, and so it's very interesting that for the Tatas, cricket is a way of, again, affirming British Indianness, uh, of affirming sport as a site in which you could cultivate generally British values. Uh, and at the same time, they're also ambivalent about this, the, the growing racism and the racial intolerance, especially of the, uh, the, the British in India. Yeah. And that's a very interesting part of the story too. I think that that's uh, an interesting point to bring up in terms of the way that cricket historians or maybe traditional cricket historians look at this period as a kind of a golden age mm. of cricket with these great players like Ranji, for example, or C.B. Fry. Yeah. Whereas in fact, for people like us, this is a time when... Uh, cricket is becoming less tolerant and in fact um, it's not a golden age if you don't have a white skin or, yeah. or, and, and uh, so and I think the kind of the imperial triangular tournament is a classic example of that isn't it um, yeah and and you're absolutely right and that's again one of the themes in the book in the second half of the book is really set in Britain in the summer of 1911 but I was using it uh, as a window into the, uh, the, the, the sort of the dying so the years of the Edwardian era, mm -hmm. which is very much associated in cricketing terms with a golden age, as you just said, of, of uh, English cricket. Uh, and we have this you know, the roll call of names, the writings of Cardis that has kind of, you know, made all these people seem larger than life, uh, the cricketers of that period. But also the game itself has been somehow unsullied by all the uh, sort of the subsequent um, uh, deterioration, the subsequent uh, commercialization, the subsequent decline, as it were. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's almost a sort of a rosy halo that, that surrounds um, the, the cricketers of this period. And yet, as you just said, if you actually look at the period itself, it, uh, it's very clear that the contemporaries living through that, those years didn't see themselves as living through a golden age. In fact, uh, on the one hand, 
cricket is clearly uh, has reached a pinnacle in terms of the uh, technicalities of batting and bowling and so on. Mm. Uh, individual performances have attained a new level of sophistication and so on. Uh, but if you look at the, the uh, discourse, the uh, rhetoric surrounding the game, a lot of it is dominated by a sense that English cricket is in decline, that cricket has been sullied by commercialism, that you know the cult of amateurism has has been diluted, and um, and then of course, uh, sort of you have commentators who say that if you want the game to go back to its truly great. Uh, sort of uh, age, you need to restore uh, amateurism, you need to get rid of um, commercial uh, elements in the sport. And and also, you know, a kind of critique of professionalism in the sport. Yeah. So, so it's almost like a uh, cry against everything that's associated with modernity, as it were. Yeah. And what's interesting, of course, is many elements of that uh, rhetoric and discourse continue even to this day. And what it tells us in a curious way is that somehow English cricket has been closely associated with a certain language of nostalgia, that you know, a certain language which sees the past as having always been conflict-free, as having always been great, and the present as an age of decline, as, as a deterioration uh, from those golden days. And it makes you wonder you know, what it is about English cricket that these uh, lamentations this misty-eyed nostalgia for the past has been a perennial feature of the game from the late 19th century. Uh, you know, and, yeah. and I think it, it tells us that somewhere English cricket is a mythic construct. You know, the language that surrounds the game is a mythic construct and that each generation reconstructs it and infuses it with the same elements that were there in, in, in the past. But of course, the context in which that takes place changes. But the key elements of that discourse, you know, uh, I think have been fairly enduring and fairly continuous across this long period of time. And, and so for me, it was very interesting to use the Indian cricket tour of Britain, which incidentally hardly gets a mention in most accounts of the histories of English cricket in this period. In fact, yeah. if you look at all, uh, you know, all the, well, you know, the traditional uh, histories of English cricket, there's hardly a mention of this tour, perhaps a line at the most. Uh, so, you know, when I was looking at my book and having devoted, you know, as you know, it's quite a long book. Um, it was quite ironical that it's I, I'm writing a really long book about an event which is not even, you know, in most cases, it's there as a footnote. You know, so it's really an example of taking the footnote and turning it into a subject in its own right. But, but it, that marginalization also had to do with what you just said uh, about the fact that this was a extremely um, uh, a discourse that was very much dominated by a particular understanding which was driven by race which was driven by a certain notion of hierarchy and of course a certain notion of what constituted uh, cricket you know and and of course uh, the idea that cricket is essentially an english anglo-saxon game uh, you know that others don't fully understand and and if they don't understand it how could they play it with any degree of confidence or skill. So, you know, so you actually see all the exclusions that were so central to the mythic self-image of the Edwardian uh, golden age. So in a way, the book is also an uh, exercise in, in recovering those excluded histories, I would say. Yeah, I mean, talking about excluded histories, I mean, for me, the real star of the book was, was the bowler, uh, uh, Pawan Kabalu. 
yeah. um, who Guha uh, or Ramachandra Guha calls the first great Indian player. Um, but it's not just his cricketing ability, is it, that makes him this great figure in Indian history? Can you tell us some more about his subsequent career? Yeah. Um, Balu was undoubtedly the greatest Indian cricketer uh, of his time. I, as I've just said, Ranji would have been the natural um, sort of person for, you know, for such a title. But Ranji didn't see himself as an Indian cricketer. Uh, most of his cricket was played in England and he, he was regarded by most as an English cricketer. And he himself, as we discussed, didn't see himself as an Indian cricketer. In fact, consciously distanced, distanced himself from Indian cricket. So, Palwankar Balu, I think, is clearly uh, sort of has to be the uh, first great Indian cricketer because he played all his cricket in India. He learned the game and uh, in India. So, and of course, everybody who watched him play uh, said he was an exceptional bowler. Uh, in the book, I describe a match report which compares Barnes and Balu. Uh, and and Balu doesn't come off badly, which is extremely high praise when you think of how uh, fantastic a bowler Barnes was. And when you think about the fact that Balu was in his late 30s, you know, well past his best. Um, so it's very clear that he was not only a great Indian bowler, he was probably one of the best left-arm uh, slow bowlers of his time across the world at this point in time, across the cricket playing world. Um, Balu uh, is born into a family that upper caste Hindus regard as untouchable. He comes from a caste known as Chamars or Chambars as they were known in Western India, leather workers. Uh, but his father and his grandfather had worked in the military uh, for the, uh, in the British Indian Army. And that explains the avenue of social mobility that allowed him to break out of these traditional confines of caste, take up cricket, play it, uh, successfully first in the city of Pune, uh, in, uh, which is a few hours from Bombay, and then uh, in Bombay itself. What's very interesting about Balu is not only is he a great cricketer, he comes from his family itself, his brothers are also talented sportsmen. And I described how, um, you know, all four brothers, uh, there were five, one died early, but the other four brothers all played together, not only uh, successfully as cricketers, but also uh, as hockey players. Mm. And cricket becomes their route to social mobility and also their quest for dignity and justice. Um, Balu, of course, uh, his cricket career uh, continues for a few years after the 1911 tour. He's already in his late 30s, as I said, in 1911, but he continues to play until 1920. Uh, before he retires, there's one very interesting um, incident uh, or event which uh, sort of gives you a sense of the link between cricket and politics. Balu, uh, despite his seniority, is not made captain of the Hindu team. And his brothers uh, uh, are also, you know, uh, sort of agitated by this. And in 1920, um, both, not only is Balu left out of the team, uh, in 1919, he's left out of the team. And uh, in protest, the, the Palwanka brothers refused to play. And they write a letter sort of excoriating the Hindu selectors for this blatant discrimination. Um, after he retires from cricket, Palu um, becomes involved in politics. He becomes interested in uh, the affairs to do with his community, but also questions of caste discrimination more generally. He's, he has his sympathies with the Congress. And in fact, 
he is uh, pitted by the Congress against um, uh, B.R. Ambedkar, Baba Sahib Ambedkar, who's widely regarded as the, the foremost uh, Dalit political leader of the 20th century, the drafter of India's constitution. Now, Dal uh, Balu and Ambedkar have a very interesting relationship. When the Indian cricket team comes back in 1911 after the tour of uh, England and uh, Britain and Ireland, uh, Balu is the most successful bowler. He's taken over 100 wickets. Uh, and Shivram, his brother, is also very successful with the bat. Um, they become heroes. The both brothers become heroes to their community and to uh, Dalits more generally in Western India. When they return, there's a public reception in which the address of honor is read out by Ambedkar. Um, and Ambedkar says somewhere that Balu was one of his heroes. In 1930, when, uh, 32, when uh, the uh, civil disobedience movement was waning, there was a roundtable conference, and the British had come up with the idea of separate electorates, which Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, was very opposed to, and Gandhi went on a fast. And there was great pressure on Ambedkar to, you know, because they'd been, uh, the, uh, you know, Dalits had been accorded uh, sort of their own electorates, and Gandhi's fast was directed against that, and Ambedkar uh, does a, uh, has this great pressure put on him to sort of, you know, rescind his demands and, um, basically negotiate with, with Gandhi. Uh, so Ambedkar uh, sort of negotiates with Gandhi and you have the Pune Pact as it were in 1932. Mm -hmm. Balu is one of the uh, two other intermediaries who interlocutors who parleys with Gandhi uh, and, and you know, suggesting his importance in the politics of the Dalits at this point in time. In 1937 though, the Congress very cleverly feels Balu against Ambedkar. And, um, and he loses that um, election. The, this is the provincial elections of 1937. Of course, from 1926, Balu has also been part of the Bombay Municipal Corporation. So he's, you know, he's, uh, he embarks on a career in public life, which is made possible largely because of his success as a cricketer. And yeah. again, as I said, the, uh, you know, that tells you how the lines between sport and politics are again blurred. And, and, and the book tries to point that out and recount sort of that story too. And the implications of, of the early politics of that tour or of Indian cricket still resonate today, don't they? I mean, these ideas of communities in India, I mean, I'm not, I'm not from an Indian background myself, but can you talk about the resonance between what is happening now in the relationship between cricket and politics and its historical roots? Right. Yes, I think, I mean, uh, in, in a sense, the 1911 tour anticipates so many features of modern contemporary Indian cricket. Um, let's take the fact that uh, cricket and the nation are indelibly linked. Mm. Uh, now, of course, the nation is, uh, you know, the cricket team, now as then, the cricket team is seen to represent all the diverse uh, constituencies and parts of the nation. Of course, the, since 1947, you know, that notion of the communal, uh, the nation being made up of communities has given way to the notion of a secular identity on the sporting field. So even though, uh, you know, the Indian cricket team may be defined by its, uh, you know, the, even though the Indian cricket team has people belonging to different religions, it's not on that ground that they're selected. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the fact that the Indian cricket team has players from different religions is often used as an example to, of Indian secularism, of Indian diversity, etc. Uh, the one big continuity, in fact, the one big um, sort of 
puzzle, uh, or some would say not so much a puzzle as a very characteristic feature of Indian uh, cricket, is that of caste. The fact that caste discrimination still is an enduring um, feature of uh, cricket and sport in India. And the, and the form that this takes in the context of Indian cricket is the utter absence of Dalits in Indian cricket. Um, right. that, that, you know, that it's quite remarkable that the first Indian cricket team, the 1911 team, had two Dalit players in it. Uh, and that has never happened since. And in fact, you can literally count the number of um, Dalit players who played for India on the fingers of one hand. Um, it's, it's less than four or five, um, you know, and, and largely it's hard to even establish the figure because we don't know the caste identity, even of some of those who are regarded as having been Dalit players. Uh, but caste discrimination has been uh, a very integral part of, of, of Indian cricket. And, um, and of course, it's one that those who see sport as divorced from uh, politics and identity, etc., will disavow. They would say that, you know, sport is a realm that's separate from all of this. But they still haven't been able to come up with an answer for why it is then that there's so few Dalits have played for India. Mm. And obviously, the answers have to the you know in analyzing that one needs to think about structural uh, sort of uh, discrimination the barriers to uh, you know to dalit participation in the sport uh, the middle class domination of it in urban areas and so on so so that's uh, an interesting sort of way in which you know the questions or the uh, issues arising out of that first indian cricket tour still continue to be relevant to this day in, uh, in, a, in, a, in, in one sense, at least, the 1911 tour comes off as better yes. than, than what's happening now. And, and it's remarkable to think that in the age of empire, two Dalits could play for India. And in the age of, uh, you know, democratic uh, nationhood, mm. that hasn't happened. So it, it raises important questions about uh, inclusion and exclusion in the context of Indian cricket. If you think of the relationship between the middle classes and sport, that again is a parallel that you can draw. And in fact, you could say that, you know, the first Indian cricket team is, exemplifies the growing middle class dominance of the sport. And that has continued to this day. Uh, cricket still remains very much a middle class sport, though even though now its social base has widened, there's a much larger plebeian sort of uh, following. There's also plebeian players. But by and large, the institutional structure of the game does elevate the role of the middle classes within it. Again, if you think of the relationship between money and cricket, I mean, uh, you had the Tatas then and you have various sundry industrialists and business magnates, Yambanis, etc., who dominate the sport now. Uh, then as now, you know, cricket was a route to social uh, sort of status, uh, you know, to flaunt one status and think of the owners of the IPL and think of the Maharaja of Patiala who had his own team. You know, so yeah. interesting parallels there. And of course, the the fact that cricket is not simply about sport, that there's always a political dimension to it. You only have to think of the hyper-nationalism around cricket, you know, what happens when India plays Pakistan, you know, to see how the sport has symbolic meanings that transcend the sporting field, to see uh, how, you know, all those teams that we associate with the 1911 tour, the first Indian cricket team and its fortunes, all those uh, continue in some form or the other to this day. Yeah, um, we're recording this uh, during the pandemic of 2020, so people in the future uh, will have to forgive us for the uh, the audio quality. Um, but it struck me that there's some re resonance between what's happening now and the situation 
in plague-stricken Bombay, which you wrote about for your last article for Modern Asian Studies. Right. Um, are there any sporting parallels to draw between Bombay in 1897 and the UK in 2020 when we've had to stop playing cricket? Well, I, I was uh, thinking about this question, funnily enough, the other day, because Bombay had uh, was one of the uh, places where the third major global pandemic of plague, uh, the one that broke out in the late 1890s, um, Bombay was one of the sites which were very badly affected. Uh, and of course, what's interesting is that uh, plague didn't get in the way of cricket, as far as I can tell, because cricket matches continue to be played. Uh, in fact, the first Indian cricket team, the project to put it together was happening at a time when the pandemic was still uh, very much around. Um, there's also a very interesting uh, link between pandemics and sport in um, uh, sort of uh, at the time in the autobiography of uh, one of the uh, famous Indian cricketers of the early 20th century, uh, Deodhar, Professor D.B. Deodhar, he writes that um, he first took to the game uh, when um, each year he and his family and other their neighbor, neighbors and friends would all be moved out to play camps because you know the, the policy was to move people out of their homes into camps mm. uh, and, and then sort of... Um, uh, disinfect the areas that were regarded as infected because plague became endemic as it were. And the other writes that the time spent in those camps was often the time where, you know, they used to play cricket and so on. And, and so that is how he learned the game. Um, and, and that is how he became uh, uh, sort of adept at it. Um, so it seems to me that, you know, today we are confronted by the prospect that we may have no cricket whatsoever for uh, the coming summer. And I was thinking that uh, in the context of the plague, certainly, the British sort of uh, certainly didn't stop playing uh, cricket, nor did many of the Indian communities in Bombay. And perhaps there is hope for us yet. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the impacts of the current crisis is that the BSSH had to cancel its 2020 conference. And you were going to be the keynote speaker. But um I'm happy to announce that you've agreed to give the keynote um, as the centerpiece of a virtual conference that we'll be holding in August instead. So can you give us a sneak preview of what you might be talking about? I'm guessing that it might be something that we've been talking about for the past uh, 40, 50 minutes or so. Yes, I mean, I, I have to confess, I haven't fully um, Quite early, uh, alighted on a, on a theme. I, I sort of know the rough uh, sort of area that I might cover. I suppose uh, I, what I would like to talk about is the mechanics of writing a history of sport in the form of a book. And, and uh, because uh, this book took a very long time to write. And one reason it took very long was that I didn't quite know how to write it. And it posed all sorts of challenges about how we approach, uh, you know, our research. And, and, and what goes into the making of a book that um, addresses sport uh, as its theme and what sort of methodological issues one might have to confront, uh, or what, which I certainly confronted and how I tried to um, sort of uh, grapple with those questions. Um, because I think that sport, to my mind, is interesting not purely because of the fact that it is sport. I think it's also interesting because it allows us to think 
about more general questions. Mm. Uh, and I think one of those sort of general questions is that of the mechanics of research, how one collects material, how one goes about putting it together. And, you know, what are the challenges of, 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 of bringing it all together? And, and, you know, and how does one judge whether something works or not? And, and in my own case, I think um, what happened was a process of trial and error uh, in that uh, there were many early drafts which kind of uh, didn't quite work. But each time they opened up a kind of avenue which I hadn't known at the start. And, and so I guess I might talk about that. I might talk about the, method, you know, the methodological challenges of writing about the history of sport. To what extent is it, uh, does it share features with other genres? genres or you know, to what extent is it unique? Um, and, and, and what can one learn from this process? You know, I think that might be something I might address. But as I said, it's all this is still, you, know, you might find that I talk about something completely different. Who knows? <laughs> Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I think that um, I've been appointed by Raf, our chair, to be the, the chair for that session. So um, it'll be interesting to host my first event at a vir uh, virtual conference. And if you're listening and you want to find out more about the conference, um, you can get more information from the BSSH website, which is sportinhistory.org. Or you can tweet us at the BSSH's account, which is very easy to find if you look on Twitter. And if you have some time on your hands, why not flip back through previous podcasts, which included uh, Richard Parry talking um, about a very similar subject to Prashant, but um, in relation to early South African cricket and some chat about Aid Bailey there. Uh, but for this episode of the podcast, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks.